This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So I'm a philosopher, not a theologian. So this is going to be a little bit different. It's kind of how, as a philosopher, though, I think about uh, theological issues, which I guess mainly means I, I take for granted certain things from scripture and tradition and try to figure out what follows. Now, in this case, I'm doing a little something a little bit different. What I wanted to do is think about what it is, you know, so why, what, what, why do we believe that, that Christ is really present in the Eucharist? Um, and, but not in the sense of, you know, why do we believe in it? Well, God said so. But what's important about that, sort of philosophically, maybe somewhat theologically? And I've, this, this talk uh, comes out of uh, discussions, I believe I had a number of years back uh, with two Protestant uh, philosophers. I think that's where it comes from because I found notes on my computer of, those, uh, of a talk where I had the discussion with them, but I can't remember anything of that, uh, that actual talk uh, I had with them, but I do have all the notes, so. Um, okay. So we start with scripture, right? Uh, so we have the Old Testament. We are told that uh, there will, in, in Malachi, that there will be a sacrifice offered uh, from the rising of the sun to its setting, which is nicely ambiguous between from the east to the west versus from the morning to the evening, and perhaps just means both of those, namely everywhere and at all times. Um, then, of course, we have the words of institution Take, this is my body, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And we have the bread of life discourse in John 6. The Jews disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Um, and Jesus doesn't tell them, well, I didn't really mean that. That's just kind of symbolic. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood is eternal life, and I will raise him up. And in case you're wondering whether this is a, how serious and real this is, he adds, for my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. Nonetheless, there are a lot of Christians who think this is still all merely symbolic. And so, this is what I want to discuss is, is there good reason not to, not to take it symbolic? Because it sure looks like what there is is bread and wine. Well, it sure looks like there's wine. Whether it looks like bread depends on what kind of bread you're used to eating. It kind of looks like Jewish Passover bread, let's say, in the Western church. Um, so should we say with many Protestants, the appearances are right and the Eucharist is merely symbolic. That's what I'm going to call this the symbolism view. Or are there unobservable metaphysical realities of the sort that Father Jonah can tell you about, making it really true that this is Christ, this Catholics thing? But I also want to think about this question, if Christ is really present, so what? What, what does it matter whether it's really present or just symbolic? I mean, in both cases, it can be conduit of grace. It can help us grow in faith and love of God. So why does it matter whether it's really Christ? present or whether it's just a symbol of Christ's presence. 
go back a little bit to the early church. Um, St. Ignatius of Antioch, around 110 AD. I have no taste for corruptible food, nor for the pleasures of this life. I desire the bread of God, which is the flesh of Jesus Christ, who was of the seed of David. And for drink, I desire his blood, which is love and corruptible. And notice the desire. There's a longing here. And then St. Justin Martyr, about 40 years later, for not as common bread nor common drink do we receive these. But since Jesus Christ, our Savior, is made incarnate by the word of God, and in both flesh and blood for our salvation, so too, as we have been taught, the food which has been made into the Eucharist by the Eucharistic prayer set down by him, and by the change of which our blood and flesh is nurtured, is both the flesh and the blood of that incarnated Jesus. There's also this interesting mention of nurturing. The Romans accused the early Christians of cannibalism. Um, And it's probably because they heard vague stories of what's going on in the liturgy. There's some common ground that Catholics and uh, the Protestants who don't believe in the real presence, some do, but the Catholics and the Protestants don't believe in the real presence have. The Eucharist, we all agree, is central to the life of the church. The Eucharist brings Christ to us and us to Christ, whether through an actual real meeting or through grace is a question of dispute. The Eucharist is a kind of icon of Christ. It makes, it reveals Christ to us. And it's also common ground that uh, miracles happen and the miracles uh, can give rise to exceptions from laws of nature but probably not from laws of logic. You can have, you can, by miracle, a person can walk on water, a person can rise from the dead, but not, but even a miracle cannot make two plus two equal five, or a square be a circle. There are arguments people come up with for symbolic views. So perhaps one of the more famous in the history of philosophy, David Hume, the 18th century Scottish skeptical philosopher, said this. He said that, look, it sure looks like bread and wine. And our senses are the root of all our knowledge of uh, really anything that we base our knowledge of the gospel on, right? So, I mean, why would we believe the gospel? Now, he's actually skeptical of the gospel himself, so this is kind of an ad hominem to Christians. But, you know, why do we believe it? Well, because we trust that uh, the apostles saw Jesus risen from the dead, Uh, well, that was by sight. They saw him with their eyes. We trust uh, the scriptures, which we read with our eyes or listen to with our ears. If we cannot trust our senses, then we're cut off from all the reasons we have for believing uh, the gospel, and in particular, any reasons we might have for believing that Jesus is really present in the Eucharist. All that depends on our senses. So if we 
start doubting our senses, Hume says, we're cutting off, well, or I'm paraphrasing him, we're cutting off the branch we're sitting on. We are uh, undercutting the grounds for our belief in the real presence by believing in the real presence, basically, because we are, through believing in the real presence, we're denying our senses, he thinks. Uh, the two Protestant theologians I was having, a, a, and philosophers I was having a discussion with are Harriet Babber, California uh, philosopher, and Peter Force, an Australian one. They both emphasized a lot that real presence requires some very strange things. It requires multi-location, or namely the same thing, Christ, present in many places at once. We have churches around the world celebrating the Eucharist and reserving the Eucharist at the same time. It requires all sorts of controversial and strange metaphysics. Peter Forrest then raises this interesting question. So suppose that it's even true, that it's metaphysically true that Jesus Christ comes present in the Eucharist. But so what? Why, why should we care about this? I mean, because if you have a symbolic view, you can say, well, you know, the reason we whatever you say you care about with the metaphysics of it, you might say, well, it's because, you know, it symbolizes grace. It, it brings us grace and salvation and all that. Well, you could have the grace and salvation without Christ being really present just by a direct action of God in your heart. Why not just say this symbolizes that? It's simpler and we don't have to I suppose this strange stuff about something present in more places at once. And also, finally, we have like this Occam's razor line of thought. We really shouldn't suppose miracles on, unless we have to. Harry Babber gave us, gives this really neat account herself of uh, the Eucharist. She says, this is kind of a neat little philosophical point. Think of how pointing works. I am pointing to the board. Or am I? Maybe I'm pointing to myself. Look, why is it that we the pointing goes from the knuckle to a fingertip rather than from the fingertip to the knuckle? It could go either way, right? I mean, you could imagine a culture where they, you know, they point to a board like that, and they point to, to, to Father Jonah like that, right? Or you, or, it, or one where you point, you know, with the knuckle, with the with the knuckle to Father Jonah, right? It's just in language, right? Language is conventional. We we could the 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 word dog could mean a cat, and the word cat could mean a dog, right? This is just something like we make this. Human beings create language. And you might think, you know, gestures and things like that are also something human beings make, and we have these conventions. <coughs> well, um, Harry Babber has this clever idea. So, so uh, suppose we've got the host in during liturgy. The church sort of sets up what the meaning of the symbols and the, uh, and the movements and uh, everything in the liturgy is. And now, pointing to the host is a way of pointing out Christ. It's like you're not pointing along from knuckle to fingertip. You're pointing. You're pointing to heaven whenever you point to the. Uh, whenever you point to the host, you're pointing to Christ in heaven, and so. Uh, so you've got like this uh, convention. The church has just decided we will mean by pointing to the host or elevating the host or doing all sorts of other things with the host 
uh, we will mean by that, uh, this is Christ. We are pointing it out. And so, uh, and so on her view, when Jesus, uh, and Jesus here is the head of the church, when Jesus uh, points out uh, the bread and the wine, uh, what seems like bread and wine, and says, uh, this is my body, this is my blood, uh, he's pointing to himself uh, via this. He's just establishing that by pointing to bread and wine in certain kinds of liturgical contexts, we point to Christ. Um, this makes the Eucharist, on her view, an icon, which is not just a sort of mere picture. It's a window to heaven, as the, uh, as the Eastern Church emphasizes it. It really points to heaven. So this has some nice advantages, so she thinks. No controversial metaphysics, but still you, the liturgy becomes really important because it's in the liturgy that the Eucharist points to heaven. You can draw on rich reflection of the Eastern church and somewhat Western on icons. And there's a kind of embodiment here too. It's kind of incarnational because it, icons are very physical. On the other hand, I don't think this is quite adequate. So years back, before I had that conversation with the two Protestants on this, I had a conversation with one of my kids and it went kind of like this. There was a book in front, there was a kid's book and I asked them, what is this? A kid says, an orange. So I asked them, is that an orange or a picture of an orange? And uh, the kid says, it's a picture of an orange. Of course, right? Once the question is raised, it becomes clear that what the answer is not an orange, but a picture of an orange. You'd be stupid to think that's an orange on the screen here. My cat thinks uh, things on the screen are real and goes behind it to, to try to find them, but, uh, but we know better. Now, I think on a symbolic view like uh, Babbers, if you really ask this question, you point to what's on the altar and you ask, what is on the altar, Christ or an icon of Christ? I think she would have to answer, it's an icon of Christ. And that's not right. Because the answer in the Christian tradition in the first one and a half millennia of it before Protestantism has been both. It's both Christ and an icon of Christ. So that's what I want to talk about, how it's both Christ and an icon of Christ. The liturgy was designed to express the real presence. And if we have the liturgy, as in fact a lot of Protestants have liturgy, not exactly like ours, but have a liturgy, but you have it, but you don't mean by it what it was meant for, what it was meant by it in the tradition, then it's kind of empty words. It's the meaning that matters. And if you keep the words, but don't keep the meaning, you're you're not keeping what gives the liturgy its life. Still, I think the icon view captures a part of the truth, and I wanted to, I'll tell you a little bit about why I think it does. Here's another view. This is the Australian philosopher, very weird, weird uh, philosophical views gives in other respects, but his view of the Eucharist was that Christ is present by action. All right, so when you receive the Eucharist, appropriately, 
you, you get grace. That grace is God's action in you. And it happens in some way through the Eucharist. Now, sometimes we act through prosthesis, like an artificial leg. We call artificial legs, legs. I mean, sometimes we add artificial or prosthetic, but sometimes we just say leg. Um, so he thinks that just similarly, the Eucharist is like Christ's prosthetic body. It's like this extra, it's like this prosthetic leg that he has, except it's not like a one instead of a missing one, it's an extra one. And uh, we can, uh, so we can call it Christ's body because it's Christ's prosthetic body. What really matters though are the spiritual effects. But when we love someone, of course we want to get, uh, have them act on us, have them produce various effects in us. Uh, give us the pleasure of their conversation, um, do good things for us. Uh, but that's not all we want. We want to be with them. Right? Uh, one image I have, I have not had, I have not had this tragic and moving experience myself yet, uh, but people sometimes have relatives who are in a coma. And what do they do? Well, the relatives don't do anything for them. There's no action but, they, but the relatives sit with the person in the coma, sometimes talk to them. But the, being in the presence of the person you love is deeply meaningful, even if this person does nothing for you. So yes, in a friendship with somebody, we do want mutual action. You do things for your friends, your friends do things for you. You get benefits, they get benefits. Friendship is mutual in that way. But we also want a real presence, a real togetherness. You know, Zoom uh, presence is not good enough for, uh, for us, as I think a lot of us have discovered. Um, so we want a real togetherness with those who are there. Moreover, if you think that Christ is present in the Eucharist by action, then you cannot actually point to the host and say, Christ is present there, the, unless you think there's a miracle happening in the host, because the action is supposed to be on these on this kind of Protestant view in the soul, in you, in the recipient, right? Because it's the action is God's grace acting in the recipient. So, in fact, if the host were here and I was receiving grace to, according to this kind of Protestant story. I couldn't point, I really shouldn't point and say that's Christ is present there. I should say Christ is present here. And it's not even physically here, in my soul. And so that gets things wrong because it is, it is this, Christ says, that is my body. Not, uh, not uh, He's not pointing to the recipients, he's pointing to to what is elevated in the, the liturgy. Still, the action view captures a part of the truth. Christ is active in us through the Eucharist. Why does the real presence matter? Well, many, many things. So I just want to say a few things from my point of view, and this is extremely incomplete. 
we're alienated from God. Right? This is the tragedy of the human race. Um, there's actually, I mean, I said this is the tragedy of the human race, this is original sin and all that, but there's also an alienation just from the fact that we're not God. They were infinitely distant from God just by being creatures, right? I mean, I'm closer to a worm than to God. By being embodied, I am alienated from the being that is pure spirit, that is pure actuality. But of course, beyond that, I choose often not to walk with God. I choose to be a further alienation through sin. Through sin, I get alienated from God, from my neighbor, and even from myself. And in particular, uh, I sometimes even get alienated from my own body in sin. This is especially true in sins of the flesh, where one treats the flesh as a mere object rather than as, a, as the embodiment of something in the image and likeness of God and as a temple of the spirit. So through Sin, we are alienated, but also there's a kind of distance between us and God through everything. When we love someone, we unite with them. We unite with them, Thomas Aquinas tells us, in mind and will. And Thomas has a beautifully worked out uh, philosophy of uh, how we unite with those we love in mind and will. But Thomas also says there's something more we want. There's more... So uh, he, we all, he, he calls this formal union when we unite with mind and will just by loving someone. But there's also something he calls real union, which in love we want. This kind of further togetherness that's not just in mind and will. And what that is varies from relationship to relationship. In some relationships, this real union involves one kind of thing and others and other things. For example, in marriage, it, may, it involves uh, sexual union and uh, procreation. Um, in friendship, it involves doing things together. But we are embodied beings. And so there's some kind of, it's very natural for us as embodied beings that we want, when we want a real union of someone we love, we want it to be a real physical union embodied. Hence what I said earlier, we are not satisfied with presence by Zoom. We want real physical presence with people. Um, and as I said, sort of, uh, I talked of marriage briefly, and, uh, and marriage is particularly relevant because the union between God and God's people in Scripture is compared often in both the Old and the New Testament to marriage. The nearness in marriage, the closeness, the real union in marriage is achieved through bodily self-giving of the spouses to one another. Christ. The bodily nearness is obviously important to God because that was the point of the incarnation is Christ becoming one. Christ coming to us bodily. That's what incarnation means in the flesh. The incarnation fulfills embodied humankind's longing for nearness with God, overcomes alienation, embraces our bodily nature. But now here's, I think, an, a really important insight that I think uh, is kind of one of the deep divisions between Catholics and Protestants that doesn't get focused on much. I think it's scripture says, and Jesus says in scripture, 
I'm with you always to the close of the age. And I think it is a message of the Catholic way of thinking that we are no worse off than the apostles, than the people in the first century who met Jesus physically. We are like them living in the end times. The eschaton is upon us. Um, and while Jesus walked with them and talked with them, they weren't any better off for that than we are. We are in the same community. We have the same benefits. The coming is there for us just as much as for them. But for that to be true, if bodily presence is important, Christ has to be present bodily for us as well as if he was for them. So I think we can only say this idea, and I think this idea of him being present just as much for us as he was for them is important in other other ways. I think it's like the authority of the magisterium is a really important part of that. If you have a sola scriptura picture, then I think you have to say something like, well, as time goes by, those texts get further and further, the writing gets further and further from us. It becomes harder and harder to understand the culture in which they were written and all that. And we do become worse off than the people in the first century who just talk to Jesus and get their answers. But on the other hand, if we believe in a living magisterium, that the Holy Spirit, uh, uh, that the Holy Spirit guides and uh, protects, then we can say, no, we have that. That teaching is alive in, in the Pope, in the bishops, in, all, in our pastors, in the church. And it is just as alive in us as it was in the first century. And it is not a, a teaching that we derive from this old 2,000-year-old book. It is a teaching that is alive uh, through people who keep on preaching it through word of mouth. And we are no worse off. And similarly, though, for Christ's presence, we are no worse off. But for that to be true, Christ has to be present in body. And that is what Christians have believed of the Eucharist. So we can have all three in the Eucharist, real presence, a closeness, a physical closeness that overcomes our alienation, the icon, which is the food, which points to our nourishment and action, namely the grace that comes to us. Um, so let, let's go back to sort of the reasons why people give for not taking the for taking a symbolic view instead. We had Hume's argument that we should assume that things are as they look. And that's the base of everything. Well, we should assume things are as they look. Not always though, right? Our senses uh, point in different ways at times. You have a stick in the water. From a distance, it looks like it's broken at the surface of the water. We know it's not. How do we know? Well, we actually cross-check with other senses. We can touch it and feel that it's not actually broken. We can pull it out. Or we can ask someone. Our individual, in, in, our senses can sometimes, do in fact fail at times. Um, but we cross-check with other things. So what we get is, yes, if all we had was the sight of the host, the taste of it and all the, the microscopic examinations of it, all that, 
we think that's just bread. But that's not all we have. We have other things through a sense. Namely, we have the testimony of uh, the apostles to, to the resurrection, and which indirectly is evidence for the authority of Christ. We have the teaching of the church. We have the, the words of the liturgy, which warn us that, uh, th that we need to see this through the eyes of faith. And so our senses have to, we have to take all that into account that doesn't involve our senses still. And we then realize our senses are not giving us the whole story in the case of, in some of these cases. And that's how it is. And that's, that's a familiar thing in, in a lot of life that our senses do not give us the whole story. It is true this requires more strange, mysterious metaphysics. I'm going to talk about a lot of that in the second talk, but I do want to say something here that I think is, yes, it seems strange. It is strange how Christ could be present, but the world is full of strange things, strange things that are hard to believe. Uh, when the first uh, platypus samples went to, the, uh, to England, the English museum curator who was receiving them thought they were fake because it just was too strange. Uh, modern physics, quantum mechanics, relativity theory is all super strange. That's, we live in a strange world. Paradox abounds all around us. Um, the, the mere strangeness of something doesn't mean it's not real. Um, and finally, you know, why, should, why, why isn't, uh, why do we care about whether it's re there's real presence? Well, the we do have an answer now. Why should we posit miracles? Well, we posit miracles because miracles are necessary for God to be present to us in a bodily way through the incarnation and through the Eucharist. And why does this matter? Well, it matters because we care about real presence. We want real togetherness with those that we love and not just their action on us. Let's get this. I want to say a little bit about how we get symbol and reality joined up. So the Catholic view is that we have substantial presence of Christ. The substance, the, the, the thing that is truly there is Christ in body and blood with soul and divinity joined. And at the same time, there are species or appearances or accidents, to use the philosophical term, of bread and wine that are present together with that substantial reality. So it looks like, tastes like, behaves to microchemical analysis like bread and wine. The substance provides the reality of Christ's presence to us, which we long for. But the species, the appearances, I think they have a deep symbolic role. They present Christ to us in various ways. They present Christ to us as a still present unbloody sacrifice. They present him as nourishment as a source of joy, think of wine. So we have reality in the substance and also kind of symbolism in the substance too. Their self-giving is both real and symbolic, but there's also like further symbolism in the appearances themselves. I was thinking about icons, uh, partly because I was thinking about Harriet Bamber's uh, icon view of the Eucharist. And I was thinking when in an icon, you see, you're shown realities that if you just saw the thing that's portrayed in the icon in the normal way, you wouldn't see it. If you were at the Last Supper, 
it would not look like this. Uh, you wouldn't see these flames and so on, right? You, you wouldn't see the halos. You wouldn't see, uh, you, you wouldn't see the words here uh, uh, written in Greek at the top, you know, floating in the air, right? Um, you wouldn't see the symbolic colors of clothes and all that. Uh, the angels in the background. You wouldn't see any of that if you were just seeing it. Uh, but the icon, uh, icon painter adds all this. So the icon manifests uh, unseen realities visibly that you wouldn't see if you just uh, looked at the thing physically. And I think in the Eucharist, the appearances of bread and wine are like an icon. And so I was thinking this, you know, suppose that Christ was present in his normal appearances. That would sound great. I mean, uh, we long to see what, uh, you know, what he looks like and all that. I, but it wouldn't look like that. It, it wouldn't uh, have this iconic meaning. We, it wouldn't mean this is something that will nourish us from the inside by eating. Right, so coming back here. We don't have. We wouldn't have the same kind of uh, un uh, uh, meaning of unbloody sacrifice. There is a meaning that is conveyed by the appearances of bread and wine that wouldn't be conveyed by the appearances of uh, Jesus in human body, actually. And so there's actually, I think, a way in which the the remainder the remaining of the appearances reveals something about the way that Christ is giving himself to us that makes it be an icon and makes us see more rather than less. And maybe the hiding is also important. This is something like liturgically important, especially in the liturgy of the East where things happen behind an icon screen. The, the, the consecration happens behind a screen. The, hidden, the hiding of things, just like in the Old Testament where the highest uh, things were done in the inner room of the temple by the high priest, uh, hidden from the people. Or in the Tridentine liturgy where the priest's uh, words are silent or extremely quiet. Um, the hiding, I think, is also kind of manifesting. It's a manifesting of the invisible God. And so through this kind of appearances being those of bread and wine, I think we actually get a deeper kind of meaning. I think neither a view on which Christ is present just as an icon or just as by action is fully uh, incarnational. The Catholic view includes this kind of presence by icon and action, but also includes substantial presence. So our answer to the symbolic or real question is it's both. The real presence makes possible a physical closeness of the kind that's foreshadowed in the Old Testament sacrifices, the kind that we long for with the people that we love. We, uh, this helps us overcome our alienation. And what I haven't also talked about that is we have alienation of sort of two kinds here from Jesus. One, 
is spatial. He's in heaven. We're here. But there's also a temporal one. We are separated by time from the sacrifice of the cross, separated by 2,000 years. But again, I think one of those deep things between Catholics and Protestants is that uh, we're not worse off. And so the liturgy makes Christ's sacrifice of the cross present to us in time as well. Thank you. Thank you. Time for questions now. Yeah. Uh, so how would you, if the Eucharist is both a symbol and reality, how would you defend against the assertion that instead of the body and blood being transubstantiated into uh, the bread and wine being transubstantiated into the body and blood, how would you defend against it by saying that both bread and wine and body and blood have I think that we would have two things. We wouldn't have, we would have, uh, when we say the Eucharist, we'd be meaning two different, there would be two things there. And one of them would be a symbol and the other would be a reality, but there wouldn't be some kind of natural unity. It would be kind of like a mix of two things on the altar. So I think one issue with that. Um, I think we wouldn't have the kind of, so there would be very strange. So, so we, let's say we point, right? And say, there's a host and we say, this is Christ. But what are we really pointing to? Well, how does it, I, Harry Babber thinks we somehow have this convention that we point to Christ in heaven through pointing us, but this is not how the church see, has seen this. That it, her view is just historically not right. The church's view has been this right there, what is on the altar is what it is Christ. Um, but what is being pointed to? Well, if there were two things, if there was Christ present and bread present, let's say, we would be pointing to the visible thing. The visible thing would be bread. And there would be, let's say there are two substances there, a visible substance and an invisible substance. If I point, I'm pointing to the visible substance. And we say, saying this, that's Christ. But no, the visible substance is not Christ there. Now, on the Catholic view, there is no visible substance. So if you're pointing, you can't be pointing, it can't be a completely ordinary pointing where you point out the visible substance because there is no visible substance. So sort of, your finger sort of then defaults <laughs> to pointing out the invisible substance that is present. And so I think a consubstantiation make, doesn't actually make true, this is, uh, this is my body when Jesus says so, because you would be referring to the visible substance that he is showing to his uh, people, if there were a visible substance there. Yeah. 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 
how does that support somebody who holds the fears of yeah. understanding of you as this system icon? Right? Like, if that reality that it points to is not actually there, is not indirect. So, how is that support in your life? Yeah. Well, it's central to the maybe. I guess there are kind of two issues. There's a horizontal and a vertical component. I think it's going to be horizontally central and that that's the central part of how Christians gather together in a community. And so the, so there's a kind of the common meal becomes, uh, it's a sign of unity and in fact effects a kind of unity in the church. And in fact, it kind of, almost a kind of, a very incarnational kind of unity, sharing a meal, right? I mean, that is, that is important. Um, so I think there's a kind of, uh, to the community aspect of the church, it's going to be central. To the vertical aspect, it's going to be central if you think that uh, it's at least associated with God's giving of grace. And that will, you know, the Protestants vary in their views on everything. Um, among those who take a symbolic view of the Eucharist, you'll have some who still think, who have a fair, somewhat sacramental view in which they think grace is mediated through that. And I think then they can say, yes, that, that's a very deep presence um, through grace, namely grace is received there. And then you'll have somewhere say, eh, no, there, there isn't any grace received through the Eucharist. You, you may receive grace at any time in your life, maybe. And this maybe just symbolizes that grace. In that case, it's, it's less clearly central in that vertical dimension. But I think generally they will think it's central, even if they don't have a, a worked out story as to why it's central. Yeah. So Christ came to himself via bread wine, but could he have chosen another way? Is that possible? I think so. Yeah. I mean, because it's appearances, he could have, but it wouldn't then have. Uh, we would lose the iconic uh, importance of wine as a thing that uh, nourishes, uh, hydrates, uh, gives joy. So yeah, I mean, it could have been orange juice if he had so chosen, but it, then it would have a different kind of symbolic meaning. Yeah. So with the symbolism, one might point to, like, I guess, the counter argument, and I was curious to answer, like, well, you know, that the, the in Shabbat meal, they have the only two requirements for bread and wine, the past when there's a bread and wine lamb, and these are all symbols, but they're not really, they're not the, like, I guess the sin offering, and some of the sin offering is a symbol of the reality, but not a necessary indication of the change of nature. And if that makes sense, like the grace, it's just the, by participation, you are acting in faith versus doing something actually substantive to the universe. Yeah. So here's something I was thinking of. So what, suppose we have a merely symbolic view. So the idea is, did I say this? I don't think so. I think there might have been a slide I skipped over actually. Um, suppose we have a merely symbolic view. And so, okay, our reading, what is this a symbol of? Well, there's bread and there's wine. Our eating the bread and drinking the wine then is symbolic of our eating Christ and drinking Christ. That's strange. Wait, 
because the symbol is supposed to be, at least symbols in scripture, are supposed to be symbols of something real. So if it's a symbol of us eating Christ and drinking Christ, and we're not actually eating and drinking Christ, we have a symbol of something unreal. That seems like a false symbol, a misleading symbol. Um, so I think it, I think on a symbolic view, you can't actually even even say it symbolizes the eating of Christ. It, it, that it symbolizes that it symbolizes Christ's body. I think you have to say something else. It symbolizes grace or something, and that really doesn't fit with the the words of Jesus. Does that help at all? Yeah. Uh, we said that with love and unity as embodied beings, we desire physical presence with the object of our love. Um, and that Christ said, I will be with you always until the end of time. That's part of bolstering our argument for why the metaphysics matters. But the saints in heaven have a more perfect unity with Christ, even though they're not embodied, and therefore do not have bodily unity with Christ. But we wouldn't say that they're worse off. No, but the it's the, the beatific vision. I don't want to say compensates, right? But it overcomes the this. Um, so they have the beatific vision, which is this. Uh, direct vision of God. If we had that, then yes, we'd better, we would be better off than we, if we had that and didn't have physical union with Christ through Eucharist, we would be better off than we are now, I think, which is why it makes sense to long for that. But notice that even in their case, they, they are not complete. The resurrection of the body is yet to come, and so a some a, a bodily presence of Christ to them is still going to be important even to them. Now, could God have arranged us so we have the beatific vision now and and not the Eucharist? Well, God has his God 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 has his ways of setting things up, and we have the. We are on the way rather than having arrived as yet. And it is good that he leads us gradually in this way. But yeah, I think the bodily union is still important to them. I think they, they, they do not yet have all that is uh, destined for the human being. So we would say that there is the body and the seeing. Both are important, but the seeing is greater than the That's body. right. That's right. We don't have the seeing yet, and we're not ready for it. And we may not be ready when we die, hence purgatory. Wouldn't part of like a Catholic path to also be as you mentioned, like the body alienates us from whether we're embodied that is Maybe from God, but but now that the incarnate the incarnation can kind of overcome that yeah. as well. well like yeah. Like yeah. Like yeah, 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 that's true. You don't have that aspect, but on the other hand, well, 
I wouldn't say that because they are human beings and it is part of the nature of the, so, so even if they are not actually embodied, they are the kind of beings that for their completeness need embodiment. And so even if they're not, they don't have a body, there's still that difference uh, that they have from pure spirit, that they are the kind of being that is incomplete without a body. They do. Most of them do not have their bodies. Our Lady does, <laughs> and possibly some Old Testament saints. But this also, you know, makes it clear why it's important that that, that she has her body. I think it does. I think that this is the incarnation. We are, we are, but he's not physically present to us. So the fact that he has a human body, I think, is already a kind of unity we have with him. But it's not, it's not satisfying that when someone has a body and we love them, we want to be with them in body. I mean, it's great to have Zoom talks with Jesus in, who is in heaven, but it would be so much better if he was here. And he is, down in the chapel. Yeah. So, if there's so many purgatory who don't have the singing or the physical, they are in the way. They're on the way. Maybe the, the fact that, the, 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 I don't know. What do you think, Father? Are the souls in purgatory worse off than we are in, in our uh, time? I would rather be a soul in purgatory than as I am right now. Uh, because the soul in purgatory have a certainty. You know, they know that they are going to be in the position. They are, you know, without a doubt going to heaven. Right now, you know, I have, I hope that I will go to heaven, but I don't have absolute certainty because I can still mess it up. So that, um, yeah, you certainly don't want to be uh, in well, purgatory is not correct, but no, it would be I think preferable to be in purgatory because you do know that you are assured of that, even though it will be extremely uncomfortable. But my, if, if there were a state of being in purgatory forever, that might not be preferable. Well, that would be hell. <laughs> that would be hell, actually, yeah, because it would be guaranteed. Yeah, so that's like, yeah, purgatory by definition is uh, temporary. It's yeah. It will pass away, it's not one of the last. So if, if after death we end up in purgatory, that, that's a cause for rejoicing rather than for a bummer, right? <laughs> Things were better. Yeah, yeah I mean, I think mean, Dante helps express that, you know, with his own, his poet expressing that they are, the souls in purgatory have certain punishments that are extremely painful, as he portrays them, you know, but that they, they are suffused with a particular joy it's like you're going to hospital but you know this is an infallible doctor who always manages to cure their patients it's going to be unpleasant but it's going to work yeah uh, I, really, I was talking with a uh, 
Calvin's pastor I know, and he was talking about their view of the Eucharist, and they said, I, I still don't understand it at a much of a level, but it was like, they said, he said that they believe it, it is, but I suppose it's part of the parsing being there, is the body, blood, soul, and divinity, and it is a partaking of the grace, and it is the body and blood of Jesus, but, but the difference there is that no part of the substance, it's not a consubstantiation where it is both the bread and both Jesus. And it's, it is merely that, I guess it's going on that line of action argument. But I don't know if it fits precisely where you're saying, like, it basically, it becomes set aside. And by partaking of it, you partake in this body, blood, soul, and divinity, and even drink the Jesus Christ, but the bread itself has no bread and wine itself have no yeah. So there's the change. So there's I think a kind of view which I think actually fits maybe. So my one of my criticisms of the action view was that you know you should point to ourselves as where Christ is, not the bread and wine. I think that is actually one of the Protestant views is that it's in the reception that Christ comes to be present, not in the consecration. So. When Jesus says, "This is my, uh, uh, this is my body," he's kind. Of, he's not. On that view, he's not saying something that's literally true. He's like saying something about the future. It will be my body and 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 blood when you when you eat it. And it's not like it will change. Or, I don't know exactly what, where it goes, but the idea is that it's it's the reception that is the central thing, not the. What happens at the altar? Thanks very much.